to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, February 27th, we are studying John chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. In today's text, the Jews are ready to stone Jesus, but our Lord refutes their charge from the law and from the works that he is doing from his Father. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves as pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great to be with you, Pastor Apple. So we get started today, Pastor Hemmer, give us some context. What should we know about John's gospel and the preceding things that Jesus has been up to leading up to our text? So we are we're we're almost to the peak of the crescendo of this hostility towards Jesus. And I, I didn't uh I didn't actually count how many times people are conspiring to kill Jesus in in John's gospel. Um, but we're we're close to the end of those. Really, it you could it goes all the way back chapter two eighteen when when the Jew just after Jesus is uh, clearing the temple, the Jews ask him for a sign that they might know he has authority to do these things, um, and he he of course gives them the the promise that the sign will be that he will tear down the temple and raise it again in three days prophecy of of his death and resurrection but since that moment there's just been this slow it was sort of a slow build at the beginning but in the last couple chapters the the hostility towards Jesus the desire of of the Pharisees to to work the crowd up into this frenzy to kill Jesus because of the signs that he's doing which remember they asked for back at the beginning mm. Because of these signs, they want to kill Jesus, and and it will come. It'll come to a culmination, just in in the next chapter, in chapter eleven, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They they first plot to again to kill Jesus, and then because the the raised from the dead Lazarus is a walking, talking sign of what Jesus has done, and therefore who he is as the the promised Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, they also have to conspire to kill Lazarus. And then all of that will will sort of resolve, in a sense, at at chapter 12, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem for for the last week of his life, for Holy Week. So we're almost to the, the peak of that. And you can sense just that growing hostility between Jesus and the Jewish leaders here at the tail end of chapter 10. Mm. So as you said, Jesus has been under threat of death before, and they've been conspiring to kill him because of signs. And I wish I had counted now how many times that was mentioned, because I I don't know off the top of my head. 
But it does strike me as you're talking that he they conspire to kill him because of the signs that he's doing, at least as, as I'm thinking back through what we've read so far and going into today's text, the two times that they're picking up rocks to actually start throwing at him have less to do with the signs that he's done and more with what he's been saying. Back in chapter eight, when he said before Abraham was, I am, that's when they were actually picking up the stones. And here again, they're going to pick up stones. It seems more because of what he's saying and not only because of what he's doing in the signs. Exactly. They're, they're reacting to, to everything Jesus is doing and saying. Um, and when what he's saying clearly confesses that he is sent from God, one with God the Father, um, the Son of God, all of these things, all of these sayings as well, have the crowd riled up, ready, ready to right. kill him. So you're right. That's, that's exactly what's happened uh, at the beginning of our text, that they're picking up stones to stone him. All right, so let's go ahead and look at this text. Again, we're in John chapter 10, starting at verse 31 this morning. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him him there. That's our text for today. That's John 10 verses 31 to 42. So, Pastor Hemmer, as we were saying at the beginning of the text, the Jews actually pick up the stones and they're ready to throw those stones at Jesus. Again, why why do they want to do this at this point? What has Jesus said that has them at ready to kill him like that? Well, what he's just said in the in the paragraph just preceding our text is he confesses his oneness with with the Father. I and the Father are one, and then thir- verse thirty. That's how verse thirty ends, and then verse thirty one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And this, this oneness with the Father is following on, on his talk about uh, his being the good shepherd at, at the beginning and, and really for the first half of, of John 10, and the desire of the good shepherd to guard his sheep against the wolves. So the wolves being those uh, promoting false doctrine, um, the wolves clearly here being being the Jews leading the sheep astray away from the good shepherd himself. And he promises eternal life to his sheep and confesses his oneness with the Father from whose hand no one is able to snatch the sheep. And that's, that's what enrages the Jews so that they want to stone him to death. 
This reaction that the Jews have against what Jesus has said, I think is significant for us today when we think about who is Jesus, and there have been those throughout history, and certainly there are still those today who would deny that Jesus is God, or who would deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God. And the fact that these Jews react in this way, and they're ready to stone him at this point, I think is one of those places in the scriptures where it would be good for us as Christians to point and say, look, Jesus did claim to be God, and the fact that they're ready to stone him at this point is very strong evidence that they understood what he was saying, that he was claiming to be God. They didn't believe it, but they knew what he was saying, and we should know it too. You're right. And and the fact that there's no there's no middle ground with Jesus. They can't just listen to his teaching like like so many modern people want to do, make of Jesus a good teacher, a moral example, whatever. It's it's either Jesus is of God or he's he's blasphemous against God of the devil. There's no there's no middle ground. You can't you can't be fence sitting with Jesus trying to, you know, sort out some of his good teachings from things that you don't like. He is clearly confessing himself to be God from the Father, one with the Father, and he if he were not, he could have easily uh, just solved the situation. He could have sent them all away by by clearly confessing, I'm not God. You have somehow misunderstood what I'm saying, but he doesn't. He really, he just intensifies it. Um, that, so, well, we'll get to it later on in the text, but intensifies it when he, when he says, you know, the Psalms say, speak of kings as gods. So there's nothing blasphemous necessarily about that. But but then I am, in fact, not just a God, like the kings sitting in the place of God or the judges sitting in the place of God, but I am, in fact, the Son of God. Hmm. So you're right. He definitely intensifies this as the text goes on. I want to talk a little bit more about what you said, that there's no middle ground with Jesus. I think you see that very clearly in the Gospel of John. There is a place for someone to come to Jesus and listen to him over a period of time and let his teaching shape that person and mold that person and bring that person into deeper faith. I think you see that with the disciples in the Gospel of John. At the same time, as you said, there is no middle ground so that there's not really this option available to us of sort of hearing Jesus listening to him teach and then saying, oh, that's nice, and then act as if somehow that doesn't change things. That That's really not an option, which that it seems that that's one of the options people try to take more and more in our day, I, I think. But John, in the way that he writes his gospel and records all these reactions against Jesus, he really doesn't allow that. It's either you, you have to, there's there's black and white and it's one side or the other. You're right. When I When I say there's no middle ground, I don't mean to say that Immediately, you have to confess Jesus either from God, God in the flesh, or uh, um, you know from the devil, doing the devil's work, propagating lies. He does, you know, he's he's catechizing his disciples along the way. Um, you think back in in John four with the Samaritan woman. Um, he's he's teaching her, um, showing her who who he is by showing his knowledge of of who she is. So he is bringing those disciples, those who are being taught by him, into a fuller knowledge of who he is. But 
what I'm what I mean to say is that there's no room for the sort of modern treatment of Jesus that would make him a teacher among other teachers or a guru among other gurus or a religious leader among other religious leaders such that some things that he says you can live with you can learn from other things that he says you can discard you can set aside um you can believe that you know maybe they were fitting in a in a cultural context or they were for a certain time or a certain group of people but but they somehow no longer apply to us either he is he is divine or he's uh demonic mm, yeah so it is precisely this point that is at discussion here in John 10 that is the reason you can't just take Jesus as another guru or another great teacher because of these very claims that he is making that he is one with the Father, as he just said, that he is the Son of God. You either have to to take that wholesale and to listen to him and confess him as Lord, which is where John wants to lead you as he writes his gospel, or if you're go- again, if you're going to take him seriously, these are the options open to you. Or you have to do eventually what the Jews here do to him. They want to kill him because they believe he is blaspheming. He's of the devil. There's there's just not this middle ground open to you. And it is because of this teaching of Jesus that he is claiming to be one with the Father that forces your hand and mine to take him seriously and by the power of the Holy Spirit then to confess him as Lord. That's where John wants this to lead. Now, that's not where it's going to go for the people in the text. They're ready to pick up they're ready to throw these stones at him that they've picked up. Jesus is going to answer them, though. In verse 32, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? What's what's Jesus' first response here? What's he saying to the, these Jews? Well, uh, he's saying two things, really. He's saying, first of all, the works that he is doing, um, the good works that he's doing, are not just from himself, but are from the Father, um, they they come from God the Father, the Eternal Father. So, they're first of all they're good, um, and they they have a an authority, a source beyond Jesus Himself, and so He's He's sort of laying them out in front of them. For which of these good works, you know, the healings that He's done, um, giving sight to to the blind. Uh, most recently, for which of these good works, restoring creation, um, giving giving relief to to those who suffer afflictions in in this created realm, for which of these good works are you going to stone me? And these works themselves are not merely from me, but they are from my Father and your Father. Um, although. You have that back and forth in John 8 where he says, your father really is is the devil. Um, he makes them acknowledge that first, the works are good, and second, that they are the works of God himself. Hmm. And so then he asks, for which of these works are you going to stone me? And And I think that emphasis on from the father is important here. Because this has been part of Jesus' conversation with the Jews throughout John's gospel, as you mentioned back in chapter 8, that was one of the questions that was being discussed was, whose father are these, or whose father do these people really have? And Jesus laid it in front of them, because you are not believing in me, Jesus says, 
your father can't be Abraham and your father can't be God. Your father must be the devil. Here again, that mention of the works from the father recalls all those conversations and goes again to this matter of I and the father are one. This unique relationship that Jesus has with his father is once again at play. And by by mentioning that, that these are good works from the father in particular, I think is really the the key to understanding what he's saying. This isn't just another case of saying, hey, look at all the great things I've done. But more importantly, look at these things. They have come from my father. Why would you deny that? That, I think, is really where the emphasis lies in Jesus' words in verse 32. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Jesus puts the question back to them, for which of these good works from the father are you going to stone me? They answer in verse 33, hey, it's, it's not any good work, but it's this blasphemy. Uh, we've kind of talked a little bit about this. What do we find out again in verse 33 from their answer to Jesus back? Well, they say uh, that they believe him guilty of blasphemy, that is, misusing the name of God, because, they say, you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, this is, this is a, a perfect little phrase, and you have to, you have to love the way that uh, John the Evangelist works this in, that it's actually an inversion of, of reality. It's so very close, but, but not precise. It's not true that Jesus, being a man, has made himself God, but it is true that Jesus, being God, has made himself a man. So there, there can be no blasphemy no denigrating the name of God by, by Jesus' incarnation, but there is an exaltation of humanity, of mankind, in his descent down to become one of us. And this, this, uh, this theme of, of uh, what the incarnation does to man, what it, how it informs our anthropology, is common all throughout John's account of the gospel, all the way back from, you know, chapter 1, 14, which, which we know and love so well, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, all the way through uh, to the end where Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out and, and confesses of him, behold the man. You have this, oh. this powerful anthropology, this powerful confession of, of what it means to be a human being now that God has become man, and here you have John, you know, using the the language of the of the Pharisees and their accusation against Jesus of blasphemy to to confess this this ongoing uh, elevation of of man of the flesh in the incarnation of Jesus. So it's clearly not blasphemy if he's God, and that's that's where Jesus will will answer. After that, if he's not God and calls himself God, then then it would be blasphemy. It would be misusing the name of God. So this this again, right, exposes the the fact that if he calls himself God, he can either be you know what what does C.S. Lewis say? He can be a liar or a lunatic, or he can be the Lord. He can be right, or he could be lying to people, uh, which would be demonic, or he could be a lunatic. He could be self-deluded. He could actually believe himself to be God, but not really be God. Or the alternative is that, that he is 
sent from God and is one with the Father and has now become man with us to to redeem us from our blasphemy, from uh, from our inability to to keep the name of God holy, to let it be holy among us also. He, by descending down into our flesh, um, brings the name of God with him and places it upon us in our baptism, makes us holy with with the holy name of God, so that instead of blasphemy, it's it's the exact inversion that we are are elevated with the holy name of God, which Jesus brings to us and gives to us as it is his. He makes it ours in in this exchange that happens at baptism. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the way you bring out that, I would call it irony in their words, that they say, you being a man, make yourself God, when in fact, you what they should have said rightly is that you being God have made yourself a man. Is that is that right? That's the way we, they should have said it? Yeah, they well, it, they still would be wrong in their accusation sure. blasphemy, but they would be making a, a profound confession of truth were they to say okay. it that way. Right. So, and and that, I mean, that I I really appreciate that because it does bring out those themes that you've already pointed out in the Gospel of John about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. My mind was going to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three, where Jesus tells him that, you know, no one, what is it, where is it? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, this idea that, that Jesus is God who has become man, he has come down to save us. It reminds me also of the the way it's confessed in the Athanasian Creed. In the Athanasian Creed, we speak about Christ in this way. He is, he is one, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. And so the way that, that Jesus is spoken against here, there is some irony there. You being a man, make yourself God. In fact, Jesus being God has made himself man and for the good of man. Talk talk more about that, because that's something I, I think maybe we haven't talked too much about yet in this series, is what that, what that means for us. The fact that God has made himself man, what does that mean for us who, who are men? Well, it's first an affirmation of the goodness of creation, that, that God, the creator, did not, you know, his creation was not so uh, that his his affection for his creation, mankind being being the pinnacle of his creation, was not lost in the fall into sin, such that he would discard his whole creation, send send it all to hell, destroy it with fire start over with with a fresh batch of of sinless creatures instead he gets into his creation the creator becomes a creature the son of god becomes the son of mary and enters into his creation such that in christ we we have a brother who is also god so he he elevates our flesh and you, and you see this happens it sort of puts the the exclamation point at the end when in his flesh he ascends 
into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now a human being sits at the right hand of the Father. This, just like we sing in in the Ascension hymns, in, in his ascension, we behold our own. And it's not a kind of spiritual ascension. It's a a kind of physical ascension. All humanity ascends with Jesus. He elevates all our human flesh back to what it was before the fall into sin. He restores the image of God to those who are in him and with him, for whom he is a brother and an advocate and a Savior who has given himself on the cross. So there's there's an affirmation of the goodness of creation, and specifically in creation, the flesh of mankind, that God would, would take on human flesh, means there's, there's an intrinsic goodness to, to, to being a, a human being that, that is made even, even more good, restored, in Christ's incarnation, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all, all of his work um, that is a result of his having taken on our flesh, he restores the, the image of God to mankind again. And there's, there's a certain comfort and encouragement for those of us who, who have flesh just like he does. So he, with our flesh, has endured all the temptation that we have endured. Um, he, is, he is a high priest who knows the intensity of, of trial, the intensity of temptation, and yet never once sinned, never even had, had the desire to sin. And so there's an encouragement for us who are in Christ also to find in him a, an example of what it means to, to live in this restored humanity, what it means to, to, to live uh, as, as we were intended to by our creator from the beginning, in restored relationships with the rest of creation, in restored faith and relationship with, with God the Father. Um, all of that we have in, in the example of, of our brother, um, the, the Son of God who's become the Son of Mary. Mm, uh, very helpful, Pastor Hammer. I really appreciate you drawing that out, again, from the irony that what they say, you being a man, make yourself God. In fact, Jesus being God has made himself man, and that is the comfort that is ours from that glorious truth. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We need to take a short break. We're talking to Pastor Jeff Hemmer this morning about John chapter 10. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, 
A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 27th. We are studying John chapter 10, verses 31 to 42 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves as pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and he is the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Hammer, prior to the break, we were talking about the answer that the Jews make in verse 32. They say to Jesus, we are going to stone you because of your blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself God. That's their accusation. And Jesus then answers, and he starts by bringing up a passage from the scripture. He says, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And then Jesus goes on to make application. So, where is this found in the law? What is the point Jesus is making with this passage of Scripture? Yeah, so this is from Psalm 82, um, and it's actually twice in the psalm. Um, it's at the at the very beginning of the psalm, and then again at the end of the psalm, where uh, the psalmist says, here it is, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So that's a, a really peculiar a really peculiar sentence. God in the midst of the gods, um, and then and then a, a a criticism of those who are being called gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Gives us insight that those being called gods are are the judges who are standing in the place of God, to whom he's he's given his authority to rule over his people, um, and they're, they're doing it improperly. Judges, kings, all these people are, are standing in the place of God. And then as you get later into the psalm, uh, in verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like common men, like men, it says, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalm ends by, by going back to the one true God, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So it's an indictment of those who are standing in the place of God, who are called by his name, you are gods, for their failure to do what God would have them be doing. That is, that is judging properly, uh, judging without showing favoritism, uh, without showing uh, partiality to the wicked, um, these these gods, lowercase g gods, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They're, they walk in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. So that's that's what the the psalm is saying. And then I think it's also interesting to note that the the apology of the Augsburg Confession in the close of of the first section. Um, so it's at, at the very tail end of Apology 21, the last paragraph there, cites this verse from the Psalms to say of Emperor Charles that, that what was said about, about the judges, about the kings in the Psalm, you are gods, also still applies to earthly princes. And, and because God calls you by his own title, you, it is incumbent upon you to act with justice, to act with righteousness 
in your office as a king or as a prince. And so what, you know, essentially what they're doing is they're, they're calling the emperor to act justly in defending the, the true doctrine of the Augustana and, and then its apology a year later, um, and to repudiate the, the false doctrine being promoted um, by, uh, by the aorists, by the Roman Catholic theologians. Okay, so that's Psalm 82. And again, Jesus quotes particularly from verse 6, but that the thought of these human judges, kings being called gods runs throughout. And we, we've seen how this is then an indictment of those standing in God's place. They've misused the authority. They've not done what God has desired them to do in giving them that position. That's Psalm 82. And I appreciate the mention of the apology of the Augsburg Confession and how it gets used there because I I had forgotten about that part but what is what is Jesus doing quoting from it here what's what's he driving at by bringing it up yeah so the the point is if if god lends his name to people lends his office to people in calling those who stand in his place gods then then it's not it's not just using or misusing the name of god that's that's tantamount to to blasphemy it's it's misusing the name that God gives by not doing the the works required, the works that that name requires. So judges judging uh, with partiality towards the wicked, that's blasphemy um, because they have been given the name of God and and they're misusing it by acting according to their own self interests in court uh, instead of acting accord, according to how God would have them use his name, acting in justice and, and righteousness. But if, if these who are imperfect can be called gods in the scripture, then just being called God is not, is not necessarily blasphemy, Jesus says. Um, and then there's this little phrase that, that we should come back to where Jesus says, and scripture cannot be broken, then don't say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world who, uh, that you are blaspheming because I say of myself that I am a son of God. So if God gives his name to a person, then it's not blasphemy to use the name of God about that person. And to whom has, has the Father given his name more than the eternally begotten Son of God, who's with the Father from all eternity, who who has just confessed his oneness with the Father earlier in chapter 10. If God can call human beings standing in his place gods, then the Son of God can certainly be called God, and that is absolutely no blasphemy. But it's it's necessary to call the Son the one sent by the Father, it's necessary to call him God, and to do anything less than that is blasphemous. Hmm. So you, you said we should come back to that phrase that's in the middle there where Jesus says, and scripture cannot be broken. That does seem pretty important, not only to Jesus' argument, but to what the scriptures are in general. Tell us about the importance of that statement of Jesus there. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's almost uh, like a, said as, a, as an aside as if it's something that they should know, that mm. the scriptures themselves have this inherent authority to them. They cannot ever be broken. 
That is, they they cannot ever lie. And he, he says it in passing, sort of assuming that that everyone knows this to be true. Everyone knows the reality that that scripture possesses this inherent truth and inherent authority. Um, so that he moves right back into his argument that it is necessary to call the one whom the Father sends God. But I think that's that's informative for us. We we don't live in a culture that that has this uh, assumed authority to Scripture and assumed truth about about the Word of God. We live in a in a culture where where the authority of Scripture is is very much fought against. Um, but but here for Jesus, the the scriptures cannot be broken. They always do what they do and say what they say, and they always order our lives to be in alignment with them, and not rather the other way around, our shaping of the scriptures to align with with our own lives and our own desires. It's the same thing that that uh, Paul will say to to Timothy, right? That every Every scripture, and and there, as as he's saying that, uh, it refers, of course, to all the written scriptures of of the Old Testament, and the few scriptures of of the New Testament that have been written at that point. They're all breathed out by God, useful for for teaching and for reproving. That is, they possess this inherent authority to them, under which we order our lives. So in the context of what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10, this statement that Scripture cannot be broken serves to reinforce what he's saying, that, look, here is what the Scripture says in Psalm 82, and because Scripture cannot be broken, then that doesn't leave open to them the option of saying, well, you're not understanding that correctly, Jesus, or that that's just wrong. He, he would put them on the same playing ground. Look, this is the Scripture that we know cannot be broken. And so you, you've got to follow along with me here. He's taking that, that option away from them, again, within the context of his argument. But more broadly speaking, I think you're exactly right that this is such a, a huge passage for us to understand that the, the scriptures have the authority that, that we cannot break. And try as we might, I mean, you know, because in our sinful natures, we do fight against God's word. We do fight against the scriptures and, and try to find ways around them or to, to break them. But it, it never works that way. When we try, we always run afoul and, and we find that it doesn't go as well as we had hoped. Rather than us trying to break the scriptures or to shape the scriptures into what we want them to say, the opposite is why the Lord gave them to us, is to shape us, to have that authority over us, to make us into his disciples, and, and to do all those things that you brought up that passage from Second Timothy 3. The scriptures do all those things that Paul says they do, but they do that to us. They have the authority over us, not the other way around. Exactly. So this is another one of those great passages to have in our minds, on our lips, in our hearts, when it comes to the authority of God's word. Scripture cannot be broken. And to hear Jesus say it is always such a, a wonderful thing, because there there are those today who would, not, not just in the world, but even within certain Christian denominations, would try to break the authority of the scriptures. And to hear this is Jesus' own attitude toward the word of God, and he's the one who is 
the son of God, as he's claiming in this passage, and he is the one who has risen from the dead, it seems like a pretty good idea for us as Christians to adopt that same authority toward the scriptures ourselves, that they cannot be broken, and again, let them shape us rather than the other way around. So this is Jesus' point. He brings up Psalm 82. If if these human rulers were called gods in Psalm 82 because the Lord gave them this office, then it's not wrong for me to say, I am the son of God because I'm even greater than them. That's an argument, it seems, from the greater to the lesser. He says, I'm not blaspheming because I'm saying I am the son of God. In fact, I'm the one that the Father has consecrated and sent into the world. That's in verse 36. And then in verse 37, he comes back to his works. So keep keep taking us through the, the logic, the progression of Jesus' answer here. Yeah, it's, it's like he returns to what he said back in 32. If I'm not doing the works of, now he says, my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So you can't, you can't look at the healing of a blind man or in, in just, you know, a, a few verses, the raising of a dead man and say, these, these are not the works of God. These are not the works of the Father. When it's clearly promised that the one whom the Father will send will open the eyes of the blind, uh, will, will raise the, the, the paralytic, give, give strength to the, the paralytic, um, will give life to the one who is dead and, and will give, uh, good news to the poor. So these are, these are clear signs of the one who has been promised. So Jesus said, if, if you don't believe the things that I say, then don't believe them, but look at the works and the works, the signs that, that I am doing can only lead you to one conclusion and that is that I have come from the Father, that the Father is in me because I do his works, which he has, he has consecrated me and sent me to do, and I am in the Father. Our, our wills are united. Our, our goal for mankind is one, um, and that is in the person of Jesus, the one whom the Father wills and sends, consecrates, sets apart for for a specific purpose, all mankind might be restored in his taking away the sins of the world. Even if you don't believe any of the words that Jesus says, you look at his works and and then believing the works, you will also have to believe the, the words that he says, because the works testify that he is truly with the Father, from the Father, he is in the Father, the Father is in him. Um, and then believing the works, you will also believe the things that that he says. The way Jesus speaks there in verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. I think that fits very well with the way that you are explaining what's happening there in Psalm 82, as the Lord is indicting those rulers whom he has called gods, the lowercase g again, and, and they're not doing the works that the Father has given them to do, but Jesus is. And so, I mean, I think it, his, you know, his progression fits very well with the way 
Psalm 82, which he just brought up, goes. And so he's, you know, pointing out, I am doing the works of my father, unlike those in Psalm 82. Therefore, you should believe in me. And I also appreciated the way that you were you were explaining what Jesus means with the works and and why they should look at the works, because this is one of those things within especially John's gospel, and I think you see it elsewhere in the scriptures, that there is this tension between seeing the signs and the faith that comes from that versus only hearing the words and the faith that that comes from that. I mean, we've heard Jesus elsewhere, for example, in John 4, when he's speaking to the official who comes to him at Capernaum, Jesus says to that one, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I mean, you, so we see Jesus at times rebuking those who are seeking a sign and wanting only to look at works. And we can think of the crowd in John chapter six, who sees the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and they don't truly see it because they want to make Jesus this bread king. And yet on on the other hand, you also hear him like in John chapter 10 saying, take a look at the works and, and see if they are from the father or not. And if they are from the father, then believe in, me and my words. And I think that's maybe that's the point. It's not that he throws the signs or the works out the window by any means, but those always have to drive us to hear the words because that's where this saving faith is finally given. And that's that's of course where where the evangelist is driving as well. He'll end saying all all the things that Jesus said and did if they were all written down, the world is not large enough to contain all the volumes. But these things are written, and and written so that they may be heard. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So at the end, the hearers of John's gospel, right? Because he's he's writing, John's not writing what Jesus did and said for the Pharisees who are there, you know, 60 years or so before he writes down his gospel. He is writing for the community of believers who gather together week after week to hear the word and to receive the the gifts of God in, in his sacraments. He's writing for them so that in the hearing of, of this, they would not need the signs that Jesus did. They would have the, the greater signs that he continues to be doing in the midst of his people, forgiving their sins baptizing them in in his death and resurrection, feeding them with with his real body and blood so they would not get lost looking for the kinds of foreshadowing miracles that that point to who he is in giving his giving himself on the cross for our redemption, but that we would find him in his word and ongoing signs that he continues to do week after week that to deliver to us that by believing, in, in him, you might have life in his name that deliver to us the life that is only found in his name. So there, there's a sense in which looking for the miracles that Jesus does to prove his divinity um, is, is sort of a, a fool's errand, right? All these people see the miracles. It, it just it makes the Jews want to kill him. Um, even his own disciples fall away. They've been with him the whole time, but, but they all flee from the cross. Um, ultimately at the cross, no matter the signs that people have seen, um, there's really only one believer at the cross, and and that's Jesus. And yet he's bearing the sins of of all of us upon himself 
so that in him and in his faithfulness, we might have life. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus, after he finishes his answer, the crowd desires to arrest him still. His words were not convincing, but Jesus escapes. It is not yet his hour, as we've heard him say, and so he is not, it is not time for him to be arrested, to die, to rise yet. That will come. In verse 40, John the Evangelist tells us that Jesus goes away across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing, and there's some folks who come to him there, and there's some conversation, reactions. Take us into what happens when Jesus goes across the Jordan. Yeah, so uh, he crosses over the Jordan, and and crowds come out to him, and they say, uh, John did no sign. Here we return to that sign language. But everything that John said about Jesus was true. So here you have, you know, the the truth of what is proclaimed, um, set against the the lack of signs, no miracles that John performs. But his word holds true. Um, everything John said about this man is true, and so because of the word of John, they are they are believing in Jesus. So. John has no sign, no miracle that they might believe his word, except that everything he has said about Jesus has proved to be true. So because of the word of John, then they they believe in Jesus. Hmm. I, I, I want to just go back. Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, just go back to verse 39. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and I, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of this, that that they go from in verse 31 wanting to stone him to after this interaction they're they're wanting to arrest him so from wanting to to carry out immediately the punishment for blasphemy that is stoning him to to just wanting to arrest him has he has he de-escalated the situation hmm. that that they will settle for an arrest and and a trial um, has he confused them that that now, you know that they they're not so persuaded that that it's outright blasphemy that deserves death on the spot, and he needs a needs an arrest and a trial. I, I don't know what what to make of that. That that somehow something has changed. That first they want to stone him, but by the end of this short interaction, they'll settle for an arrest. Hmm. I'm glad you pointed that out. I, I had that hadn't really stuck out to me, but I think it's it is a good point. And it it reminds me of what happened to Jesus in John chapter seven when he was there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And in John seven, oh, it's in verse thirty two, the Pharisees hear the crowd and they send officers to arrest Jesus. And then several verses later, those same officers come back to the Pharisees. This is in John 7, verse 45. The officers come back to the chief priests and Pharisees, and and they ask the officers, why didn't you bring Jesus with you? You Why didn't you arrest him? And they answer, no one ever spoke like this man. And so, you know, it seems that the officers there had the intent to arrest him, but they didn't end up arresting him because of what they heard Jesus say. And perhaps something similar is happening here, where they were ready to kill him by the beginning, but by listening to what Jesus said, they were at least ready to to hear him a little bit more or only arrest him rather than kill him. I, I think that's a there's something to that, perhaps. And maybe we're seeing a similar thing happen from chapter seven into chapter ten. So I appreciate you bringing that out. Yeah, I, I think at I'm the very you... least we can say his his words are confounding. 
yeah. You know, and and you're you're right to go back to John seven. They don't arrest him because because of his words. We've never heard anyone speak like this before. Uh, they they come back. Their their plans are thwarted because because his word confounds them. And maybe maybe that's a similar thing happening here. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that could be going on. I I really like the what you were saying about verse forty one. With John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. That we're we're seeing there in that verse that here are people who are believing because of the word that is preached, even without the sign, which is exactly where John is taking us in this gospel, as you said, bringing up the the end there in chapter 20. And and would that the same thing were spoken of faithful pastors today? You know, this this pastor didn't do any sign. He he wasn't all that impressive, but everything that he's saying about Jesus was true. And so because of that, they would put their faith not in John, not in the preacher, but in in Jesus. But what a what a wonderful thing that that would could be said of a, a faithful pastor still today. Maybe this is a an ordination verse for the laying on of hands in the future. I don't know. Pastor Hammer, we got about a minute left. Help us wrap things up today. Well, it's it's clear Jesus is God. He he could have easily dismissed the the whole situation. Um, by saying, oh, you've misunderstood me. I'm not God. He is from God. He does the will of the Father, and, and his word holds true. And if we, if we call him anything less than God, we are, are guilty of blasphemy. Um, but, but he, in his incarnation, has exalted our human flesh. In his crucifixion and resurrection, he's given, he's given hope to us. Uh, to rescue us from from the mire of our sin, from our own wanton blasphemy, um, and and in Him we have this this perfect picture of of what a real human being looks like. Um, that in Him we have redemption, and and in this redeemed, forgiven life, um, we see in Jesus a, a picture of of how we are to live and conduct ourselves in Him. And Pastor it's, it's Jeff his word that, that always holds true. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. Pastor Hemmer, thanks for being our guest today. It has been a delight. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, please send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. That is how you can reach us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.